Well, good morning. Welcome to East Lake. So glad that you're here. My name is Brent, and if this is your first time, you picked a fantastic day to come check us out. Uh, we are on part five of six of a series we're calling Who Needs uh, God? And uh, so uh, based on kind of where we're at in the series, I, I've got to kind of move along slightly fast, and there are going to be some things that I'm going to assume that you know, just because uh, I, sh- I know I shouldn't assume that you come every week, but I'm, I'm going to assume that you've come at least part of the series. Um, so if I, if I say something that's confusing, you're like, there must be more of a backstory. There's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. There, the first four parts of this series, as well as today's message, which will be posted tomorrow, will be all up there so you can watch or listen or download to your iPod or, or do whatever you want to um, with that. But the series, the point of the series has been this, that more and more and more people in today's society are walking away from a faith in God and asking themselves the question, who needs God, or, or probably more realistically, who really needs God anymore? I mean, with all the things that we have, with the technological advancements that we, that we know, uh, the evolution of us as a species, and our awareness of, of social consciousness, and all this kind of stuff, do we really need the concept of a God anymore? That's the question that we, we found, and we said that there is a growing category of, of people who find themselves in what we say the non-affiliated uh, and when, when it comes to a survey, if there was a box of, are you Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, atheist, it would be like, or, or none of these. It'd be like none of the above. They would check. If there existed a box, it would be none of the above. We called this the category of the nuns. And maybe that's where you find yourself, right? And the motto of the nuns is simply this, I don't really know. I don't know that it really matters all that much. Like be ethical and go light on God, go easy on the dogma. Um, we, we say that uh, they're, they're, they, they're sort of passive when it comes to God and church. We're not anti, like we're not like, hey, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't exist churches. Churches do good things in the community. Uh, they, they provide hope and a sense of community for a lot of people. I'm not anti-church, but I'm just sort of passive when it comes to do I really need God, or is it just something that's great for some people, but just happens to not be great for me? That does not mean that they are not passionate about things. It's not mean that they lack passion in life or in other arenas of life. Nuns tend to be very passionate, especially lately, about male rompers. I don't know if you've seen these things, but they're basically onesies for men. Um, They seem to be very passionate either way, one way or the other, uh, and not aware that they are more uncomfortable than they look um, from just a personal experience standpoint. So, um, and then number two, uh, nuns have typically been very passionate about coffee, uh, whether it's ethically sourced or handcrafted or mine is soil grown, what's yours? Um, so we're very passionate about coffee. And one of the things that has been a tip, uh, like a, a definite spot for passion amongst nuns is the arena of social justice. This idea of uh, finding something, whether it's um, you know, United Airways or some sort of uh, thing that's taking place. And we're like, hey, that's not right. And we're going to, you know, get all of our friends together. We're going to send this thing. It's going to go viral. We're going we're gonna to vote with our, with, with, uh, with our social media on what we think is right and wrong in the world. So social justice has been increasingly a big passion of the nuns category. So today, in an effort to, we've kind of addressed, or it, we feel like the, the onus has been on us to provide reason for the support of the belief of God. Why, why should I believe that God exists? Why should I believe that you need God? I want to talk about injustice, this word injustice, since it seems to be a very passionate thing that nuns are about in the area of justice. I want to talk about injustice because, unfortunately, what we've seen and what we know 
is that more people have walked away from the idea of God because of the existence of injustice or evil or pain and suffering in the world. They have an ability, we have an inability to reconcile a God who supposedly loves, who then would allow something like this, something like what we see in our news feeds or whatever to take place in the world that we live in. And we do it oftentimes from a corporate level, sometimes from a personal level. For the most part, it's us looking at it from the outside going, I haven't experienced a lot of pain and suffering personally, but we cannot deny that it exists in the world and I cannot reconcile a God who is able and loving and cares with what I see in the world. The, the, if I could simplify it, it would be like this. If he could, he would. If he's good, he would do this. And if he could, he would do this. So either he's not good, or maybe he's not able to have any sort of influence on the way that the reality actually works. And so therefore, is he worthwhile in believing in the first place? If he's good, he would have done something about this. If he could have done something about this, he would have done something about this. And the fact that he has it and the fact that it exists and the fact that I know of suffering and evil and injustice in the world, therefore, I don't think that God exists. And today, I want to talk about how I don't think that that is a very rational approach to God. Because the approach of nuns is, um, listen, who needs God? People who don't think rationally, who haven't thought things out to their logical conclusions. Okay, I want to flip that argument on those types of people. And I want to say, listen, you keep using injustice and, and evil and pain and suffering in the world to justify the non-existence of God, but it just doesn't actually play out in that way. It doesn't even work in the way that you want it to. For it, it, just a quick example, if you look at the places of injustice, the, the massive amounts of injustice in the world on a societal level, they are typically happening in countries and continents like South America, like Africa. And one of the things that are taking place in those countries is an explosive growth of Christianity that is, is taking place in countries where injustice is at an all-time high, that is way more unjust in the society that we are comfortable with. In a society with lots of social justice, America, and maybe not complete, I mean, we all have things, we all wish it could be better, we all know it's not perfect, but for the most part, we look at what we have and what's compared to the world, and we like, well, we like what we have, which is why you're not moving to some places in South America, right? You're like, I'm, I'm good here, we're good, thank you. And yet Christianity is not growing here. And yet when you look at, and, and I read this kind of stuff because I'm a pastor and this, is, it, it, this stuff intrigues me, the, the level of kind of statistical growth of America, or Christianity in America is kind of at a, at a it depends on the denomination, but at, either at a steady pace or in a decline. And yet in China, in South America, and in Africa, what we see is the explosiveness of church growth, more and more people in the world. So there's no correlation between the existence of pain and suffering or the existence of injustice and the growth of Christianity. How do you explain that? What do you do with information like that? Here's, here's the big idea and the thing that I want to throw out there, and then there, we're going to justify it with some thoughts on it, right? There's no rational argument, no rational argument against the existence of or involvement of the God of Jesus, all right? Because we said last, uh, two weeks ago, that there are lots of versions of God out there and you would be right to reject some of them, right? We said the best picture that we can get of what God would, is like, or should be, or as he exists, is based on what Jesus said about him, not what we think he should look like. There's no rational argument against the existence or involvement of the God of Jesus based on injustice in the world. In other words, 
If you find yourself saying, or having said, or reading, or listening to people who say, well, if there is a good God, how could a good and loving God allow X, Y, Z? How could a loving and able God allow this? Listen, in the moment, if, if I'm talking to somebody who is going through a personal experience of injustice, they are on the wrong side of being unjustly treated, or they're in the midst of pain and suffering, then there's so much emotion in that thing. I understand it. I get it. If you walked away from God because of something, a pain and suffering that you personally experienced, I understand. I totally get it. If, however, you are just casting judgment on the existence as a whole, as a corporate level, or it just exists in our world, what do I do about that? Then I, I think that you've jumped, I think that you've unnecessarily walked away from God. That's been the point of this series. Listen, Perhaps you may have unnecessarily walked away from God because I don't even know if that God exists. We said there are versions of Christianity in which God is some sort of a bodyguard God. He doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. And then bad things happen to good people and you observe it. Maybe not you, but you've observed it. And you said, then I just can't, I gotta walk away. I, I, I don't know if I can believe in a God like that. Good for you. Me neither, us neither. Injustice in the world calls into question though, the justice of God, not the existence of God. Christianity has never made an argument for God's existence based on a world where bad things never happen to good people. Christianity has never been about that. Listen, we, and at this church, we've been around for about six years. October um, 10th will be seven years um, since we started this thing. Uh, I was doing the math the other day. We have done 73 sermon series. This is we're in one series. This one's lasting for six weeks. Some of them are less, some of them are more. But 73 series in zero, in exactly zero of those series, have I ever propagated the idea of a God who does not allow bad things to happen to good people. So therefore, if you come and if you sign a card or if you attend our church or if you give here, or if, you, if you bring your kids here, your family here, if you invite a certain amount of people, if you start serving, here's what I can guarantee for you, smooth sailing in life. That's never been something that I've ever said to you. I promise. Jesus, when he's with his disciples, looks at his disciples, in this world, you will have pain. You will have conflict. You know, the, the, I, here's what I can promise you, conflict, right? That's, that's Jesus' opening thing. I'm not selling you safe. I'm telling you that pain and justice exist in this world. Injustice in the world calls into question the justice. It is legit to question the justice of God. How can you say you're good when all of this has happened? That's legit. But to say, in light of all of this stuff, I don't think you exist, doesn't make any sense. Here's why. If my kids, I have three kids here today, two are in this room and one's in this room, right? If in a few years they grow up and they come to you and they take you out to coffee or you become, you're a teacher in the classroom or you start volunteering in junior high and you're a mentor for my kid or whatever, <clears throat> and they tell you, begin to tell you stories about how I was an absent father, who didn't really care, who didn't really provide, who, who, who seemed to have no uh, inclination towards helping out, who I just watched as bad things happen to London, you would not then conclude that I did not exist. You would decide that I don't know if he's any good as a dad. You've had people. You've been to coffee with a best friend, with a friend who's talked to you about their daddy issues. And over coffee, they've explained to you how the reason that I'm, I, I've got all this baggage in my life and I'm just, I just haven't dealt with some of the stuff as a kid that I was growing up with. And as a result of the conversation, you did not lean across the table and go, hey, but what about, what if he didn't exist? I don't think he exists for you. 
They'd be like, I don't know what's in the coffee, but I got I to gotta pull that away. We're, we're done. We're cutting you off. You would not question the existence. You would question the justice, which I totally get. But unfortunately, far too many nuns have looked at the pain and injustice in the world and said, therefore, God does not exist. It doesn't make any sense. That claim doesn't work with that. What we're talking about is the difference between existence and experience. That has validity when it comes to the experience of a personal God. It has nothing to do and no bearing on the existence of God. To further explain this, to help kind of maybe if this is like, I think I get what you're saying, but help me out. All right. The classical argument for the existence of God as Christianity uh, presupposes it, all right, is this. Something exists. We look around, we go, this exists, you exist, this coffee exists, something exists. I have never seen something come from nothing. I have never opened up my mailbox and thought, where did this come from? I know where it came from. I see the guy in the white truck drive by at three o'clock every day, okay? I'm not like, this, ex- this came out of nowhere. I know that the reason that something is here is because somebody put it there. I never walk in on Sunday morning and go, there's coffee here. Thank you, Lord. I, I know that Dean and Shirley woke up early to get here to make the coffee so that it's there. I never jumped to the conclusion that something came out of nothing, right? So something exists. Because it exists, something created that thing. Something cannot come from nothing. Therefore, there is a necessary first cause. Something created the some things that we know. There is a necessary first cause, all right? Christians call that necessary first cause God. Now, this is where things diverge, okay? Because what I just, those first three steps, I would say a significant majority of Americans and probably people in the world assume that view, all right? And then, then we start getting into kind of unique beliefs. Christians assume that that first cause, that original thing is called God, We've, we've put the label of God on this. That's the word that we created to define that imagery for us. We also believe that that necessary first cause created all that is natural and all that we consider to be nature. And we, we believe that because he created nature and created something out of nothing, we, we believe that he is above nature or beyond nature, that he exists in a realm or a dimension that is not known to us. It's not like you can buy a plane ticket where you go and I'm going to go visit God. We believe that, that, that although he's here, it's not, and we've got this like string theory stuff that's kind of now science is beginning to kind of talk about how, yeah, we really don't know all of the dimensions that are at play in this, right? So Christians believe there's a first cause, that first cause exists, but he exists outside of the realm of what we can see and touch and feel, okay? As a result... Uh, or, uh, then we believe that Jesus came along, he performed miracles, which were this initiation of things that we can't understand, that things are beyond natural, predicted his own death and resurrection, which is crazy. And as a result of that, we believe that Jesus best represents God and what Jesus said about God can be trusted. That is, in essence, the case for God according to Christianity. First cause, crazy stuff, exists beyond this, Jesus seemed to know what he was talking about, predicted his own death. I've never seen anybody do that before. I'm on board with what he says. What he says about God then has validity and should be listened to and observed and, obe- and obeyed. The claim of Christianity. At no point, at no point in there do we talk, is there speech or, uh, or, or the idea of the existence or the experience of pain and injustice? That's like farther down the way. Like we're not, 
We're not claiming that because of God, there's injustice or whatever. It's beyond this. It's as if, it's as if to say, okay, I don't believe in God because of pain and injustice in the world. Um, we would say that's never been a part of our claim. Like when did, when did we ever say that God existed and, there, and, and, and because of that, there is no pain and injustice? You're, 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 you're placing something upon us that we never, we never claimed in the first place. Listen, my wife and I, we got in an accident in uh, December of this last year, right? We had to get a new car, which is what you do when you smash your car in the back of a semi at 50 miles an hour, okay? So you, we went through the car shopping thing again, and you've probably done that. And you know how much you hate it, and that's why you only have to do it every three, five, something years. And you're not good at it because you don't do it very often. And so what do we do? We look online, and we're researching, and we, what, what, what I want to find out is what other people have to say about certain models of cars, right? Which is why Yelp is so popular, which is why when you go to a movie, if you're like me, you look at Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes, and you're like, what, is, what do people say about it, right? We value that thing. And you read these reviews. As I'm reading the reviews of a Chevy Traverse, I did not come across a review that said something like this. The car handles well. The miles per gallon is great. However, it doesn't do very good at flying. It's not, it, it just doesn't, it sucks at flying. Chevy would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. There, in, in all of our fine print, we have never said anything about flying. We don't claim to fly. How can you then disparage our vehicle or our product based on a claim that we never proposed in the first place. When people disparage the idea of God based on the existence of pain and, and suffering in the world or injustice in the world, that is essentially what's taking place. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We never made the claim. You've made that claim upon us or somebody told you that that was true, but that has never been the actual claim of capital C Christianity for thousands of years. Which then leads us to another big question, all right? Why do we assume that if there is a God, he must be good and just? Why? Why is it that even if you're religious, you're irreligious and church has never been a thing for you? Or you have friends and family that like, they're like, oh, I'm not really a church person. And I just don't think that God is loving, that God, you know, that he would allow some of this take, this take place. It operates with the assumption that God is loving and just. Where did you get that? Where did that operating assumption come from? Right now I'm finishing up a book called Atlas Shrugged. I don't know if you ever remember reading this in, in school, high school. Um, I was homeschooled, uh, and so I never had to read this one. I think my mom was afraid of Ayn Rand, so that, that's, that's fine. Um, I, I don't agree with all of her premises and determinism and stuff, like, but in this book, she was a, a, a fabulous, fabulous writer who constantly used rational thought, like thought. Most people operate out of emotion. I'm going to be the type of person, I'm going to propose existence through thinking through everything logically and rationally. There are no contradictions in the world. If you see, see, see something that doesn't make sense, and yet it exists, something is wrong with your operating assumption. Check your premises. Check your premises. What are you coming to the situation with as a premise? All right? <clears throat> so what is the, if you believe that God is just and good, where did you get that premise? Where did that underlying assumption come from? Who told you that? Somebody probably told you that. That idea did probably not originate with you. So where did they get it? Where did the idea that God is good and just come from? Surely it did not come from looking at nature. Have you ever observed nature in its real rawest form and thought, 
Now there's fairness and justice. All you need to do is go on Netflix and turn on Planet Earth for your kids. Fantastic documentary by the BBC a few years ago. The image, the graphics and the video is stunning. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It depicts all of these things in nature that you and I probably will never see in real life. So we pay these guys millions of dollars to go out and film all this stuff, right? And one of the things that exists, one of the stories, we were watching this with the kids, one of the things is seals in South America have to go through, if you watch it, you know where I'm going with this, they have to go through basically a gauntlet of sharks. In order to get to the feeding grounds that they want to go to, they have to fly through this shark-infested area to get there. And there's this imagery of this shark chasing after this seal, and, and he's fighting with them, and they're playing with it, and he swims, and he's diving, and he does all this stuff, and then the seal jumps out of the water. Do you remember what happens? Shark comes out, and in full graphic HD, chomp, blood everywhere. It's amazing. And I have never thought, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm watching this with, with fresh eyes. I, I remember watching that a few years ago with just me and my wife going, that's awesome. Now I watch it with my nine-year-old and four-year-old kids, and I'm going, oh boy, okay, well, nightmares tonight, right? And that's nature. You've never watched something like that and be like, well, that's fair. That's good. This is just. Somebody has to eat. You know what I mean? You've, you've never, fairness and, justice know, fairness and justice know nothing of natural law. Natural law does not operate in that way. What we said last week was that justice and dignity for all version of God was introduced by Jesus. If you believe, in, and you're not even religious, I'm not a church person, but I think that if there existed a God, he would be kind and loving and just. That idea right there originated not with you and not with the person who told it to you, but with the idea of a person, in the ideas and in the speech and the teachings of a person named Jesus. In a culture, by the way, that was captivated by injustice, in a culture where women's uh, rights and ability to own property, and ability to testify in the court of law, which it didn't even count. That's just a woman's testimony. That's flawed. It doesn't work. In a culture where kids were not named until about the age of four or five years old, because so many of them died at such a young age, it wasn't worth wasting a good name on something that could die. In, 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 a, in a culture where there was, was no justice, in a culture where there was plenty of pain and suffering, comes out this idea that God is loving and just. In fact, John, this is the guy we've been looking at for the past several weeks. He was one of the guys, uh, one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He wrote about what he remembered about Jesus. He was the last one to write. And when he wrote, he wrote with a personal motivation. It'd be like, they got the facts right, but let me tell you more about the person of Jesus. And as he writes this down, he, he, he pens a phrase that mostly, most of us know, even if you're not religious. Somebody drug you to church today or drugged you like physically or drugged you like something in your drink. Whatever, I don't care. Glad you're here. But um, here's the phrase. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. In this time, you have to remember, John is a, is a Jew he is a part of a Jewish nation who believed themselves that they were called uniquely by God, set aside for a purpose, to be the people of God in the world. And yet inside of that, he goes, yeah, but when I was around Jesus, it was so much bigger than that. He did not write, for God so loved the Jews, 
that he sent his only son. He's like, to write that in would be to limit it. For God so loved the world. What I know about Jesus was bigger, was bigger than that. Jesus' early followers embraced the idea of a God who was good and just in the culture that was deeply ingrained with injustice. How? How did they do that? And if you think that Christianity is so fragile that the existence or the attention towards pain and injustice immediately dismantles it, like, oh, it can't stand up and withstand questions about, yeah, well, what about injustice in this? How in the world did it survive the first century? How did it, in the world did it, in, it survive a culture in which it could not have thrived? John, writing later in a letter to a church, probably in Ephesus, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says this, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. When I think about God, when I think about what Jesus said about God, all I can think about is how dominant this idea of loving one another was at the core of the message of his mission and his mission. I just can't shake it. I just can't shake it. Why? Because our basis of justice is that every person has inherent dignity. Our basis of justice is that every person has inherent dignity. John taught that Jesus said that everyone was created in the image of God. Imago Dei is the words that they used for it. Therefore, since everyone is God's child, everyone deserves inherent dignity. I know we live in a culture where that's not true, where certain people who have money, certain people who are born here but not here, certain people who um, are, fall into this gender category are more important than somebody else in this gender category. But... In this realm, in the way that Jesus said the kingdom of God looks, there's inherent dignity in every person, which is the basis for our modern day interpretation of justice. The reason that things are just or unjust is because the inherent dignity of every person. We would say every person deserves this. This is what's so frustrating about the elimination of the middle class and the polarizing of the social statuses and the social economic statuses. Because when we see that taking place, we go, ah, see, there's the problem. Certain categories of people are being given preferential treatment, and we're not really fully adhering to the, the <clears throat> inherent dignity of every person. But that belief, that operating assumption, that premise, if you will, is not natural. The inherent dignity of every person is not a natural Thing. If you exclude God from the conversation, you don't arrive there. Listen, Stephen Hawking, you know who he is. They had a movie that came out a, a few years ago. It was, it was great. And you've seen his books. You've never read his books because no, nobody has. But he wrote a book called The Brief History of Time. It's like a thousand pages, something like that, right? And we know he's a natural physicist. We know he's crazy smart. He's got the ALS thing. And, and yet his brain, uh, there's, there's stories about how he's such a genius that he, as he dictates his, um, he, he would dictate his books to uh, some, like a stenographer, somebody who would write it out. Um, not a stenographer, but somebody who would you know, write those things out, right? He would correct himself from 20 pages ago. Later on, he'd be like, oh, wait, you got to go back to this other thing that I, I messed up on, or you spelled it wrong, or something like that. They're like, he's, just, he's got a photographic, beyond photographic memory. That, that's not even to do justice to this. 
He's incredibly smart in the world of biology and astrophysics. He gave a speech at Cambridge University, a speech called, Is Man Determined or Free? I'm going to send out uh, a link in the um, uh, weekly this week. You can read it for yourself because it's, it's a big deal. I pulled one quote from it. It's pretty famous. You'll find it out there. My only fear is this. Here's what he says. My only fear is this, that terror that stalks my mind, the thing I just can't shake, the thing that keeps me up at night, is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of naturalistic selection. And natural selection assumes natural rejection. Not everybody makes it. Which means that we have arrived here because of our aggression. We call it survival of the fittest. Those who are able enough win. Those who don't, don't. We've gotten here because of our aggression. And he says, I only see that continuing. We find ourselves in this place where we're kind of like, there's enough room for everybody and there's enough natural resources for, for most people at this point. You know, we're starting to hit some of the edges in that or predictions about how the food supply of the world's only this and the earth can only support so many people. He goes, as a result, my fear is that as this course continues to go on, eventually nature will take its course and we will end up killing each other. He says, the only solution as I see it is for science and technology. He goes on. I don't have the rest of this quote, but I'm summarizing it for you. You can look it up just to verify. But science and technology will advance to the point where we, are, we can discover other habitable, uh, uh, habitable, there, there's the word, habitable planets in our solar system and move away from each other and create distance between one another. Because if we don't, the only future for us, the long-term future for us, is to kill one another. Isn't that great? Isn't that positive? Isn't that what you wanted to hear? Let's just close in prayer. Let's get out of here. I'm just kidding. The nature of natural selection is not justice or injustice. It is neutral on those things. Those things, you're speaking a language that doesn't compute in that sort of thing. Natural law knows nothing of love, justice, or dignity. And when we reject the God... When we reject God because of injustice, we don't solve injustice. We remove ourselves and we lose the definition of it. The reason, the reason that you as a nun can look at me like, hey, that's injust, that's, that, there's injustice there, assumes that you know what justice looks like. That's one of the things that we're pulling from from last week. The reason you something is wrong is because you know what it looks like to be right. When you look at something and say, hey, that's unjust, that's not right, that shouldn't be. That assumes that you know what should be. Where did you get that from? Because you didn't get it from biology. Biology is neutral on justice or injustice. It's neutral on this. The best way to rid the world of injustice is to rid the world of God. Because once you remove God, then you remove a sense of justice. And if there is no justice, then there is no injustice. And what you're left with is this, my justice, your justice, Nazi justice, ISIS justice, majority justice, clan justice, nature's justice, street justice, rich justice, and power justice. And don't you tell me that your justice is better than my justice because there is no thing that we can point to, no objective point to say, well, that means that you're wrong and there's justice. It becomes relativized justice in this way. <clears throat> so 
If that is true, then what is the what is God, at least the God of Jesus, have to say about this? What does Jesus have to say about justice? And I want to remind you at this point that what I'm about to say is going to be uncomfortable for some of us. And I have to say this, something can be very uncomfortable and true at the same time, right? You know that. Something can be uncomfortable and true at the same time. Remember that last doctor's appointment you to, the annual physical? And he's like, well, you could drop a few pounds in that area. That is uncomfortable. It is also very true, okay? <laughs> uncomfortable and true. They are not mutually exclusive. Jesus brought us this idea that God is love, which is something that even if you're irreligious, you sign up for. All right, well, I mean, that's fine. It's great for you to believe that. I'm on board with love. So therefore, if you want to call love God, that's great. I'm, I'm on board for that. But that's not all he brought us. He also brought us this idea that at some point in the future, there will be justice for all. Yes, God is love, but there is no justice without judgment. And that's the word we don't like. We don't like the concept or the idea of judgment. In fact, you're not even religious. There is one Bible verse that you know, judge not, yes, lest you be judged. I even screwed it up, but you know what it is. You're like, yeah, I totally get that. I mean, because Christians are so judgmental, I'm going to use one verse against them. I'm going to take what they feel like is precious and then be like, ah, judge not lest you be judged. And then they're like, Ugh. and they don't know what to do. And they crawl back in their hole, right? <laughs> we're, we're so enamored with this idea because we don't like the feeling of being judged. I totally get that. Do you know why you resist a God of judgment? And for us to for, for, for um, a, a church like this or a pastor like me to be to, to preach on the judgment of God. Some people love the judgment of God. They spend way too many series on that. And they're like, I just feel, and I'm, I come and I'm like, I feel beaten and I feel, you know, abused and whatever. And I just walk out. I'm like, that was a waste of my time. We, we resist a God of judgment because we know we don't even qualify for, we, we know we fall short. We can't even keep our own rules. We can't keep the rules of the laws of the state of Washington, let alone the laws of God. We can't even keep our own household rules. Come on. You've told your kids, don't drink out of the milk carton. And yet when everybody's asleep, you're going, I don't want to wash glasses. What am I? The dishwasher's full. I'm just going to drink right out of the carton. That's why you're never going to drink milk at my house ever again, right? Come over. You're going to be like, I'm good. I pass. We know we all fall short. None of us fully measure up. And yet, what's interesting about justice is I want justice for you but I want mercy for me, right? I want justice for you for all the wrong that you've done to me, but I would like mercy because I had a reason to do all those things and say all those things and act in that way and whatever. A God of judgment makes us nervous, but we're not nervous for other people. I'm nervous for me, and I'm pretty sure that's true of you as well, which is why the gospel, the good news that Jesus says is here is the perfect narrative that when God saw our freedom, he took us in the direction. Or when God saw that our freedom took in the direction uh, that he knew it would lead us to, when he's like, here's some freedom, he goes, I know it's gonna, I know it's gonna ruin you. I know you're gonna probably go this direction. He's like, and, and then it happens, right? We just lean towards selfishness. We gravitate towards what's important for us and prideful for us. He sent into a world, not a judge, but a savior, not a judge, but a savior. Listen to the words of Jesus captured by John chapter 12, verse 47. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. If you've walked away from faith, if you've walked away from a belief in God because I just can't seem to resolve pain and injustice, yes, but you live with the sense that something is wrong. You do crave justice. We all do, not for us personally, but for in the world, for out there, for something. You want an objective standard for measuring up, and nobody, nobody gave it to us like Jesus did. Jesus was um, known for talking in parables. When he would gather a group of people together, he would tell stories. He was a master storyteller. And a parable is essentially a story that is made up doesn't reflect actual life or real people. It's not like the names were changed to protect the innocent. Um, it's not true. However, the principle of the story is true. You've done this with your kids. You've made up stories to communicate a truth that you want them to, uh, to obey or ad- adhere to. <clears throat> and there's one that's captured in the book of Luke. Luke records it. It's called the parable of the persistent widow. Her husband died. She had something unjustly done to her. She approaches a judge and says, I want you to hear my case, hear my case, hear my case. And this unjust judge turns his head, says, no, no, I'm busy. Come back tomorrow. She comes back tomorrow. Not tomorrow, not not today, maybe next week. Things got really busy. And he refuses to hear her case. And it says this parable of the story is that she kept coming over and over and over again. And she would wail and whine outside the door, hear my case, hear my case, hear my case. And finally, 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 after weeks or months or whatever, years of all of this crying out, the judge decides, okay, fine, whatever. I will hear your case. I will hear your cries about injustice, but only to shut you up and to get you off my back. Jesus says this, and will not God, here's the moral of the story if you haven't caught it, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Here's what he's saying. If you have lived your life with cries of injustice, if you have lived, if you've experienced personal injustice and pain and suffering, and we cry out and we, 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 we desperately want things to be made right. The best possible answer for that is not some sort of a, the next political election, though we train ourselves to think what's wrong with the world can be solved. All we have to do is vote this. All we have to do is vote Republican. All we have to do is vote Democrat. All we have to do is get him out and her in and him out and her in and whatever. We think that the solution is just around the corner and then the corner comes and it's, oh, well, not there. It's the next one. We just, we just messed up. We got, we got the wrong names. But next time, we'll get this thing right and justice will be served. And you, some of you have lived long enough because you're 20 now. You know that injustice in the world feels almost impossible. We don't know what to do with it. We just assume that we just kind of live with it now. We just sort of, we're we're still anti it. It still frustrates us. It's still when we read about in the newspaper or we hear about on TV that there is sex trafficking going on in Washington state, not just in Washington state, in the Tri-Cities as a hub of that kind of crap. We read that and we bristle and the hairs go up on our neck and we're like, that is wrong. That is unjust. That should not be happening. Those girls should not have to go through that stuff. 
What? I, I, I agree, I'm on board, what's the solution? I don't know, is it more political action? Is it more marches, is it more this? Is it more we need to invest more money into the, the police force to be able to police this stuff? Is it mental health? I, there's all kinds of things that we, and we, we find ourselves crying out for solution. Jesus says, I get it. Listen, that, that thing about injustice that thing about the inherent dignity of all people that was given to you, imprinted on your heart by your creator. You don't get there through biology. You just don't. The fact that you're that passionate about it, why is that? Why are you so passionate about it? Have you thought through that? Have you drawn that out to its logical conclusion? Perhaps there is a God of justice who imprinted that on you. C.S. Lewis describes it this way in my, one of my favorite books I read every year, Mary Christianity. He says this, if I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Not I escaped to heaven, but there is something in me that exists. There's, there's an, another realm, another dimension of existence. There's another piece about this that I have not solved based on what I see, feel, touch, and know. But something bigger is at work in this. If I can't see it, but yet I feel it. Perhaps there's something more going on with this. So if you, if you are a nun who has walked away from God because of pain and injustice on a personal level, first of all, I get it. If you've done it based on a corporate, you know, here's what I think about the world and here's the categories that I just can't make fit. I am asking you to reconsider. I don't believe that logically it makes sense to deny the existence of God based on pain and suffering in the world. You can make a, cause, a case for the, the, um, ex my, my personal experience with him. It's, it's fine to be angry. It's not, it's, it's a bigger jump to be an atheist, but you can be angry with him. I get it. And Jesus says, I understand what it feels like to be angry. But Christians live with the hope that someday the world will be put to rights. But this is not all there is. There exists something beyond this. That is the hope. That is the message that Christianity offers to the existence and the reality of injustice and pain in the world. Isn't that awesome? What you know could be and what you know should be, one day will be according to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is so difficult because for all of us, we have so many different um, perspectives on, on, uh, where, on this. For some of us, this has been on, on, on the top of our, our, our mind frame and, and top of the reasoning for why we've been distant from church or God or whatever. Uh, for some of us, it's a thing that we could point back to, something we went through that, that pushed us away from this. I pray that for each and every single one of us, that you would push us further, that you would cause us to re-engage in looking at why we're so passionate about justice, why we believe in the inherent dignity of every person, and, and, and really help us to see that that has been the core message um, of your teaching through the person of Jesus and Jesus' description about who you are. And therefore, maybe there's something there that we may have overlooked or necessarily walked away from. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.